Please take your Bibles and turn with me to another place where we might look to Jesus Christ this morning. And that is the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. So it's a, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. It's a, quite a long chapter, uh, but uh, you're just going to hope, hopefully we'll be able to work through the whole text this morning and give you an understanding of uh, what this text teaches us. Um, one of the joys that as a as a pastor in this church is that uh, we have a church body that it looks to and is eager to study the word, the Bible. Uh, you don't just want, uh, you know, topics. You, you don't necessarily just want what does the Bible say about this or that or present circumstances, current events. But you simply desire as a body to desire to hear what God has said in his word and, uh, and then understanding its application, its meaning and its application for us today. And so it's been very encouraging just uh, for us to go through. I mean, I can, the book like Isaiah, I've been receiving much from, uh, response from many of you saying that you've been blessed by uh, the study of this book. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful that, we, that you have ears to hear the word of God. So it's just encouraging. Well, Isaiah chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. And again, it's, it's a long uh, chapter. I'll read the, the text within the sermon just to, for, for sake of time. But uh, as we come to the word then, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. These are your truths, not just for Judah and Jerusalem, but for your people throughout all time. Father, thank you for the word that we'll hear this morning from you. Cause us to look to what and understand what you have said. And Father, may we come to an understanding of its application to our own lives. Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Strengthen where we need strengthening. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified. Magnify yourself and your sovereign will over this world. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, to whom all the scriptures, including this scripture, point to. We ask that your spirit would fill us, lead us this morning as we look to, again, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we come to our text this morning, as you see uh, by the title, as well as perhaps if you kind of get the hint by even the songs that we've been singing about God's kingdom, uh, that uh, we are going to be studying the subject of eschatology this morning, the study of the end times. These are, uh, in theology, we call it eschatology, and that means the study of the last things, so the, the things that are going to come in the later days, the last days. But the Bible doesn't usually use the term eschatology, though actually, well, it does. It's, it's just a Greek word for the last or later things. But the Bible, when it use, speaks of uh, the end times, it uses terms like these, uh, the latter days, the last days, the last day, and the day of the Lord. Now, as believers of Christ, when we find and we find instructions about uh, the end times or when things are going to happen at the, at the end of time, in the way in the future, we, as believers in Christ, uh, are, can really be especially excited about these passages, right? We should be especially excited because unlike some who don't know, who are not believers in Christ, who may not believe the truths of Scripture, we believe in the truths of Scripture. We understand that. For many of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled 
in Jesus Christ when he first came, in his first coming, we say. And because we know that those prophecies, some of them in Isaiah even, have been fulfilled in Christ at his first coming, it really gives us assurance as believers in Christ that all those prophecies about his second coming, about the future and end events, are also just as sure as Christ's first coming. And so that's where we can, and so as we get to the Bible, we start seeing end times, especially when you're a new believer, you say, whoa, this is cool because this is what is going to happen in the end times, without a doubt. These are certain things. And as students of the Bible, it can be intriguing to study the doctrine of Christ's return. It's intriguing to kind of discover, oh, that's what's going to happen, and that's going to happen, and that's going to happen. In fact, I want to give a plug for one of our Sunday school classes. Uh, they'll be going through the book of Revelation this quarter. So if you're interested about future things, about things we've been talking about this morning and, and throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, I would plug our Sunday school class, Revelation. No, but better yet, come to my Sunday school class instead. Um, <laughs> no, go to that one too. <laughs> Just go to any Sunday school class. However, I want to point out that there are generally two extremes that we ought to avoid when it comes to uh, studying end times. First of all, we, can, we want to avoid the extreme of being consumed uh, by when all the prophecies will take place. Because the Bible does mention about signs of when Christ will return. It talks about signs that this will happen, that may happen. And it's easy sometimes, and they're general signs that, are, that we'd see in the world almost all the time. And some people can get really carried away looking for those signs. Oh, oh, look, there's war in the Middle East. Oh, th- Christ is going to return next week. Oh, no, look, there's an earthquake in, in Indonesia. Oh, it's, gonna, it's, it's the judgment of the Lord. Oh, there's this and that and that. Wars, rumors of wars. And we kind of just kind of get, people can get carried away. Like if you get so, go so far as to think that they actually know when Christ is coming. Now, that's kind of odd because they start even, and there's a few really odd, I'll call them odd balls, that actually start predicting dates. I mean, we know of some even in our, we've known of some in our area. Predicting the date of Christ's return when the scripture teaches that no one knows. Even when Jesus was on earth, he didn't know when Christ would, when he would return. That's the first extreme. We want to be consumed by trying to figure out the, the date of Christ's return or when he's going to return. The second extreme that we want to avoid is to avoid, is simply to avoid or completely ignore the end time events at all. Simply, we think, well, since we don't know when Christ's going to return, then might as well just live, you know, lives without thinking about the end times because, well, you just don't know. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm just going to live my life, you know, uh, happy-go-lucky and uh, just do what I do. The Bible, however, teaches that we should neither be consumed nor careless about his coming. Rather, when we know the truths of the last days, of the end times, it should affect how we live, that we should live in light of our understanding of Christ's return. And this principle is seen in practically every end time passage that we find in the Bible. It's almost everywhere. This is what's going to happen in the future. Therefore, do this. Almost every passage. You just look for any end time passage. Whenever you find something about talking about the day of the Lord, the last days, the latter days, and explaining about what's going to happen in the future, you're going to find nearby a statement about, therefore, live like this. Therefore, be like this. Therefore, behave like this. The end times, the future affects how we live. You know, if you, if you knew that Christ was going to return tomorrow, it would affect 
how we all live, right? Now, we don't know when Christ, that Christ will return tomorrow, but we do know that Christ will return. And that should affect how we live. Today's passage teaches us about the last days, particularly of the nation Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. It tells us that the day of the Lord is coming when he shall judge the proud and establish his kingdom on earth. Judah is then exhorted in this passage in two, two main exhortations to live in light of this truth. I pray that our study of this text this morning might instruct us as God's people of not only the events in the last days that we should be aware of, but then that we would also strive to live appropriately to, with the day of the Lord's coming. So we'll look at chapter 2 this morning. It sort of follows, it follows the prologue of chapter 1. Chapters 2 to 5 really are, are one's whole section. They belong together, as we'll see. Uh, but we're just going to look at chapter 2 today. But it's, it's sort of an elaboration on the themes mentioned in chapter 1. So it it's kind of goes, chapter 1 is, is a prologue, and chapter 2 to 5 is a, sort of a, a little broader survey. And then chapter 6 all the way to 66 are, are more detailed, even more details of the end times. So as an outline, pretty simple, we're going to look at three revelations concerning the last days of Judah that motivate how we live today. So three revelations of Judah and Jerusalem that motivate us how we live today. Well, it motivates them, how they live, and by application, it motivates us. All right, so let's take a look. First of all, the first revelation is Judah's glorious future. Judah's glorious future. Uh, now, you, by the way, just if, if, if I, I should always remind us every once in a while, when we talk about Judah, we're primarily talking about the southern kingdom of, uh, of Israel. Israel was divided into northern southern kingdoms. Judah was the southern kingdom. Though much of what's spoken to Judah could, would apply to the nation as a whole. Uh, because by this time, or around Isaiah's days, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be taken into captivity. Uh, but these words would be just as true for the Israel, the northern kingdom, as well as the southern kingdom. But anyways, this focus is on, Isaiah's focus is on the southern kingdom. But we look at the Judah's glorious future. Now, Judah has a future. This is the prophecy of God for Judah regarding their future. Let's read these five, these, we'll read the first four verses. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This is a picture of a glorious future, not just for Judah and Israel, but really this is a hope even extends as a glorious future for the world because we see the mention here of the nations that will go to Jerusalem. Now, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is sort of similar to chapter 1, verse 1. Both identify the prophet, Isaiah, who's speaking here, and both identify the subject of this prophecy, that it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what's different, though, between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that whereas chapter 1 focused on Judah during the reigns of those four kings that Isaiah ministered in, 
Chapter 2 begins to focus more on Judah in the last days, that phrase that we see in verse 2, this phrase, last days. This term, last days, is a general term. It's a general term that refers to the time period that marks the coming of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, when they would use the term the last days, they are thinking about when the Messiah, the prophet, the one who is foretold of, would come and establish his kingdom, the son of David, the son of the seed of Abraham, who would come and reign. So they think about that, that time period is called the last days. Now, of course, the Old Testament saints did not discern that there were actually two comings of Christ. They did not discern that, oh, Christ would come at, you know, for us 2,000 years ago, and then he would come again. For them, when they looked ahead, they looked at the last days, they saw the comings of Christ really as one. And the, the common illustration, of course, is a, is a mountain range. You know, when uh, uh, if you ever go on the mountains, you'll see the mountain range. And you'll see many mountains out, out there. And from afar, they look like mountains. You know, many of the mountains in the mountains right, looks like they're right next to each other, right? They, they look like they're, they're right there in the same distance. But when you start walking towards that mountain, particularly when you reach one mountain in that mountain range, you realize that the, the other mountains that before they looked next to each other, but as you come to that mountain, you realize the other mountains aren't really next to each other. In fact, there's a great distance between one mountain and the next. There's a huge valley between them that there is still much further ahead before you get to the next mountain. And this is how the first and second comings of Christ looked to God's people in the Old Testament. They knew that Christ was coming, the Messiah was coming. They looked at him like mountains in a mountain range, but they could not discern, they, it, didn't, it wasn't that clear really that there would be a first and second coming of the Messiah. So when we look at this term, the last days, it, it really, from the, particularly in the Old Testament, its meaning can dip, slightly be slightly different depending upon the context. The, ter, the term, the last days, can refer to either Christ's first coming, that is his birth and his, uh, his life on earth. It can refer to Christ's second coming. That is the promise that Christ will return. Even as we took out the, the communion this morning, we, we take the bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's referring to the second coming. Sometimes the last days can refer to the time in between his comings. Uh, is, for instance, in Hebrews, it talks about uh, God has spoken to us in these last days. He has spoken to us in his son. That is, these are the last days. We can speak of this being the last days as well. And then, fourthly, it could refer to the whole period of time from the first to second coming and everything in between. So context and appropriate cross-references will help us decide what, uh, what uh, the term refers to in, in, throughout Isaiah. Because in even Isaiah, we may find ourselves uh, with some differing uh, or different uh, references, whether it's first, second, time in between, the whole period of time. So that's just kind of for us to be aware, especially as we study the end-time events. Now, in these verses, I will just simply tell you that the last days here are references to Christ's second coming. It's a reference to his second coming when he will come and establish his millennial kingdom. Now, 
if you look at this passage, we, some of these descriptions seem true of Christ's first coming. They, they sound very similar to the say, like uh, we think of the, the people going to Jerusalem to hear the truth. And we think of the, the day of Pentecost and how many people went to Jerusalem. And there they heard the gospel. There they were saved. And so there are similarities to his first coming. But when you look at all the universal descriptions in verses 1 through 4 or 2 through 4, we can conclude, we can, more, it's more likely to conclude that this is refer, a reference to Christ's second coming. See, in the last days, Jerusalem and Judah will become, according to the prophecy, a city and a nation, not of reproach, but of renown. It will become the most well-known city in those days. It will have a worldwide glory as it will become the center of God's kingdom on earth. The very one, the, the Messiah will return and he will establish the eternal throne of David there in the temple, in the, in the heart of Jerusalem. And from there, his reign, his kingdom will not only influence Judah, Jerusalem, but Judah and Israel and the Middle East, but all the nations around the world. It will have a universal reach, just as we've looked upon, read in this passage. It will, this, this city will have a renown, be renowned. It will have a renown for truth, according to verse 3. There we see in verse 3 that many peoples will go to Jerusalem. They will they go there to, to learn God's truth. They will say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. You know, many times people uh, may want to go to Jerusalem just for to. Uh, to see the, you know, the, the temple, to see the, the ancient, ancient sites. But very few people say, well, let's go there to learn the truths of God today. That's not a place where generally people go to learn the truths of God. Though, you know, you can do some study, Israel, Israel study trips and things like that. But one day, the world will say, let's go to Jerusalem so that we might learn the truths of God. There the law and the word of the Lord will go forth from that city. Another thing that will draw people to the city of Jerusalem and Judah will be its renown for peace. It will be a city that's known for peace because Christ reigns from there. There he, the Lord, will judge and rule over the nations. They will rule over the, the peoples of the world. And here we find that, that beautiful, very poetic phrase that his justice, his peace will be such that the peoples of the nations will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that all their instruments of war will be no longer necessary, and they will just turn them and hammer them into instruments for farming. You know, so hopefully we'll enjoy farming because that's what we're doing, uh, pruning trees and things like that in the kingdom because uh, it's not like we're going to be learning how to fight or anything. No, there'll be no use for that in the kingdom that is coming. There will no longer, that's the most profound thing, is there will be no longer be wars in those days. And so in light of this glorious future, and we really just only, we're just really briefly touching it. I mean, you can kind of, you can take this, uh, these five verses and just kind of preach a whole sermon on it. But, but just understand that this is the, Judah's glorious future. That Judah and Jerusalem will be the center of Christ's kingdom on earth. Christ will reign there, and it will, he will, they will be known for truth. They will be known for peace, and this will be a worldwide renown because of Christ. And so in light of this glorious future, God calls Judah to respond in verse 5. He calls him to respond and says in verse 5, Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. God calls them to walk in the light of the Lord. The light of, refers to God's truth. Psalm 43.3 is a good cross-reference for that. You see, for Judah and Jerusalem, if the nations are going to go to Jerusalem to seek out God's truth, then 
Ought not the people who live in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, ought they themselves not walk in those very same truths? This uh, prince, the general principle, even as we look here in this passage, is this. That our future hope affects present holiness. That if we are going to offer the light of the gospel to others, we're going to be sharing Christ with others, then we ourselves ought to be walking in the light of God's word. If we're going to be, a, if the church and the church is to represent Christ on earth, uh, where no matter, even if we don't do so very well, we are, the world understands that when you want to understand, see Jesus, you go to his church. That in, if we're going to represent Christ's church, we're going to be known to be a place for his truth, then we ought to be living according to those truths as well. And whenever our disobedience, when we disobey God's commands, God's word, just like Judah did, we become a hindrance to God's program, God's kingdom. We, hint, we don't become the effective witness for Christ that we ought to be. 2 Peter 3.14 kind of reemphasizes even this, that after describing the coming day of the Lord, Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Our future hope affects our present holiness, how we live today. Now, for Judah, the call to walk in the Lord's light is necessary. Because despite its glorious future, its present was far from glorious. We've already kind of saw that in chapter 1. And it's because of their present condition that God sends Isaiah to them to give them his, a revelation from God. Yes, a glorious future awaits Judah. That's promised by God. It's promised to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, to David, their, their seed. But what happens to Judah, what happens to Jerusalem before that time, before that glorious future, is directly related, related to Judah's inglorious present, and that which is our second uh, revelation of about Judah. And that is, this sort of kind of just is similar, again, to what we saw already in chapter 1, but Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, reminds Israel where they are currently, or their, what their situation is now, or at least at that time of Isaiah's ministry. And we read in verse 6 through 9 these words. For you, that is the Lord God, have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. The conjunction four in the begins verse six indicates that what follows is an explanation, explains the need for why God's people are to walk in the light. To put it simply, they need to walk in the light because they haven't been. And, they have, and because they haven't been, God has abandoned them. Now, God has been very, you say, well, that's kind of cold. Well, no, God's been very patient with Judah and Jerusalem. He's established the kingdom. He raised up David. He gave them one of the mightiest kingdoms known on the, on the planet, on, on the earth in, in, that, in that era. He, God raised up his son Solomon, who was the wisest king. God gave them, I mean, delivered them, brought them to the land. And all throughout Israel's history, they sinned time and time again. Time and time again, they would go back to their idols, go back to the idols of the people of the world, go back to want to be like the, the rulers of the world. Even the fact that Israel has kings was a 
basically because they wanted to be like the peoples of the world. They wanted to be like the nations. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted a human king. And we see that because of that, that, that uh, those, the sinful uh, behavior or conduct of Israel led eventually to a place where God says, I've had enough of this burden. And we saw that in chapter 1. And he is now abandoning his people because they weren't walking in the light. The key phrase throughout verse 6 to 8 is this phrase, filled with. Filled with. Filled four, we see it four times. And it pictures a vessel or a jar that is filled. Now, Judah was to be a city, or Jerusalem as well, as the whole nation was to be a, filled with the glory of God. They were God's chosen nation to reflect his glory, be a blessing to the world as he blesses them. But instead of being a, filled with the glory of God, they were filled with the glory of men. They were filled with their glory, the glories of the peoples around them. They put their trust in their in. In the, in the creation instead of the creator. And throughout these verses, we see a strong contrast between Judah's future in two, verse 2 to 4 and Judah's present in Ju- verses 6 to 8. In verse 6, the latter half of verse 6 particularly tells us of how instead of being a city filled with God's truth, they were filled with man's thoughts, man's ways, man's principles, whether they were from the east, from the, from the west, the Philistines, or from the foreigners all around them. They pursued the, the, idea, the ideas and the thoughts of the world. They were filled with man's thoughts, verse 6. Instead of looking to the Lord for light, they looked to the philosophies and religious practices of man. And even we can tend to do that. Even we sometimes, when we, in living in this world, we have God's word speaking to us, but then we also have the, our society that we live in. It's, it's conviction, saying uh, that this is good or that is good, this is the law, and telling us that these are the ways that we should live our life. But and sometimes the world gets it right, but oftentimes it gets it wrong. But first and foremost, we as the people of God should always say, well, the, how we live is first and foremost determined by what God says, what he says, what truths that he reveals to us. In addition, verse 7 tells us that instead of being filled with peace from God, they were filled with the peace that comes from man's riches and might. They put their trust in their, in their riches, in their str- military strength, their economic prosperity, their military strength were the source of security, just as many nations and people today find security in. And lastly, worst of all, though, in verse 8 tells us that instead of being known for the worship of God, they were filled with the worship of idols. Yes, they were, they were a prosperous nation at this time, Israel, or Judah was. And you would think that when you're prosperous, you would say, oh, thank God for all these blessings. But they were busy worshiping idols. Yeah, they worshiped God too. They had their bases covered. But they dared to profane God, the worship of God by worshiping the idols in the high places. Foolishly, they worshiped their own creation rather than their creator. And so in verse 9, God prophesies through Isaiah that the nation's pride and the things of creation would inevitably lead to their own humbling. God there in verse 9 talks about how they would all be, they are humbled. He actually, it speaks in a, prof, in, a, in a past tense. We often call this the prophetic past tense, where things that are speaking of the future are so certain that it, will, it, it is translated in the past, it's given in the past tense, because it, even though it's still yet to happen. To make matters worse, in verse 9 tells us that God would not forgive these Israelites. He would not forgive them in the sense that the judgment that is coming because of their sin wouldn't be irrevocable. It will come. God's not going to ha- continue to forbear with them. 
The Lord had been much patient with Judah, but he has had enough of the rebellion. And so their present continued sinfulness ensured that judgment would come upon them. And before Judah would, could ever come to know its glorious future, God must do a work of cleansing and restoring Israel from its inglorious present that we find here in these verses. That, for that cleansing then wouldn't come to us in our third revelation from this passage that Isaiah reveals, and that is the Lord's future day. Where this cleansing, where this restoration of Judah would come from would be because of this one revelation of the Lord's future day. Now, early in, in verse 2, Isaiah used the term the last days, plural. But here in the latter uh, half of chapter 2, we see this mention uh, throughout this pa- these passages, actually even uh, the chapter 3 and 4 as well, a reference to a specific day. Uh, we'll find even in this chapter, we fr- the phrase in that day is mentioned three times, verse 11, verse 17, verse 20. But the key verse that speaks of this particular day is in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. There it says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. This day that is coming is a day that is associated with the Lord. In Hebrew, it literally reads, The day of the Lord of hosts. And then it's implied that this day is, is coming, or it will, that the Lord will have this day. Uh, this day of the Lord of hosts. And, and that's where we get this phrase, day of the Lord. Uh, it refers to this future day of judgment. Or, and sometimes it's not just the particular 24-hour day, but the day that is the period of time uh, as well. Day of the Lord is used 19 times in the Old Testament. We find it specifically 19 times in the Old Testament. The first time, in, at least in our Bibles, here in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Five, appears five times in the New Testament. And the term is, the term, the day of the Lord of hosts, is consistently used to refer to a future day of God's judgment. It's always a reference to this judgment that God will bring in his wrath upon sinners. And this, depending upon the context, though, this judgment sometimes applies to things that are fulfilled in the near future. For instance, even in Isaiah, we're going to find times where this day the Lord refers to the Babylonian or the Assyrian conquests of of Israel and and Judah. But more often than not, the day of the Lord has a far future fulfillment, referring to the end times, the millennial kingdom, uh, the tribulation, uh, and other far, at least from our standpoint, those end time events. So, again, context Cross-references will help us discern which, was, which uh, is which. And so uh, hopefully as we study the book of Isaiah, you're going to get used to it. You say, oh, you know, whenever you see the word the last days or you see the day of the Lord, ask yourself, is this referring to something nearby? Is this referring to far? Don't just, don't just presume, instantly presume, oh, this refers to Christ's second coming. Okay, not, not always, not always. It's good. Uh, it's good to be like Brian's. Check it out. All right. Um, so before we try to identify the interpretation of this particular day mentioned here in chapter 2, I want to know what this passage says about that first day. First of all, the day of the Lord will be a day when the Lord alone will be exalted. Verses 10 through 17. Let's read this passage. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so we see, just kind of even in the text, like sort of underlined for us two of the key phrases here in verse 12 and verse 17, reiterating this truth that the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 10 tells us that this is a time, this day of the Lord is going to be a time of terror as well as splendor. When Christ returns, it's like, when Christ returns, it will be a terror for sinners. It will be frightening. Because God in his holiness is coming to judge. But at the same time, for those who know the Lord, because the Lord is beautiful, it will also be a time of majestic splendor. It will be a time that it will be an awe for those who know Christ. It will be a magnificent and glorious time. But make no mistake, it will also be a time of terror. For all will see the Lord of hosts appear. And that would be a frightening time. But the key phrase I mentioned that I repeated in verse 11, verse 17, is that the proud will be humbled and the Lord will be exalted in that day. That's what's going to happen. The proud will be humble, all mankind, in everything that we, we boast ourselves in, whether it's trees and mountains and, and uh, cedars and towers and walls and ships and crafts, all these things that we find pride in will be brought low, will be, made, will be revealed to be empty, Nothing worthy of our trust, of our security, but only the one will be exalted, whom everyone will recognize, that that is the one. He is the one whom we should be trusting in, and that will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that is lifted up will be brought low, and only the Lord will remain exalted on that day. Secondly, the passage tells us that this day of the Lord will be a day when the Lord arises to make the earth tremble, verse 18 to 22. Let's read this text. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. See, on that day, according to verse 18, people are going to get rid of all their idols. Verse 18 and verse 20, in fact. People are going to say, right now there are many idols. And we talk about idols that people actually worship. In those days, they made idols out of trees, out of precious stones, gold and silver. And they are days we still have idols of those sorts, but a lot of our idols are the idols that we build ourselves, whether it's our own construct, our own creations, our own, the, own, our, the things that we value more than God in this world. But in those days, there will no longer be idols. Why? Because everyone's going to see who is the true and living God. And idols will all of a sudden be realizing for the, the vanity and the nothingness and the foolishness that they are. To have them in your hands, like, what am I doing with these idols? I don't care if they're gold or silver. Throw them away because the Lord who of terror is here is, is going to be the response. They're going to cast them away. 
And the terror of the Lord is described here even further that men will, it will be such a great terror that people, men will hide in rocks and caves. They're going to, holes in the ground, people will hide in. They will look to hide from the God's wrath before his terror and splendor. When he arises, both times in verse 19, verse 21, repeated, when he arises to make the earth tremble. That the whole earth is going to tremble. Now, of course, this could be figurative. This could be figurative of that every, the whole world is going to be afraid. And I think definitely the whole world will be afraid when Christ returns. But I believe that this also is a, is, we can take it just as much literally. We, if we, there's no other reason not to, we should, we can, we ought to take it for its face value that the whole earth will tremble, that the earth itself will tremble like a large, and in, in with a large earthquake. This is what happens when the Lord, the day of the Lord comes, when he arises to make the earth tremble. So what day is this? Now, <clears throat> there are two main interpretations of this day. Some interpret, have interpreted this day as a day that, uh, that is uh, fulfilled in the near future. They think of it, it must refer to the Babylonian or the Assyrian uh, captivity of Israel. But this day, when we look at these verses from verse 10 all the way through verse 21, it's a day when all men are humble. A day when, when everyone is humbled, the Lord alone is exalted. It's a day when the whole earth trembles and all mankind will flee and hide in caves and holes and clefts of the rock. It's a day when all idols of this world will vanish because the Lord has come. This day, I think clearly is the future day of the Lord. This is when the Lord, will, Jesus Christ, will return. Sorry about that. Got so carried away. Lost track of my sli- or slides. This day is the future day of the Lord. It begins when Christ returns to rapture his church, commencing that seven-year period of tribulation where wrath and judgment of God is poured out, this, that 70th week of Daniel. If uh, you ever get to Daniel to study that. And then culminating in his return, Christ's return, to establish his millennial kingdom. This is that future day where all these things will take place. In Revelation, the tribulation is described by the seals and trumpets and bowls, judgments that we'll look at. All chapters 4 through 19, I believe, are all describing that tribulation period. And it's very frightening when you look at it. But in that tribulation, there, according to Romans, Revelation 6, 15 and 17, men will do what? They will hide themselves in the caves and rocks for the great day of the wrath has come. That's, remind, that's an allusion to the words of Isaiah here in, in chapter 2. What's more, in Revelation 16, verse 17, 18, the final seventh bowl, the very last seventh and the final bowl judgment, the very last of all the judgments, is accompanied by a great earthquake, a great earthquake that is such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, that there will be an earthquake that will shake the whole earth. When the Lord arises, the earth trembles. And so Isaiah is a warning Judah of that day, that future day of the Lord is coming. So how should they respond? Verse 22. Here's the response. Every time when there's future hope, always affects present holiness. He says, stop regarding men, man, 
whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? That is simply stop regarding, stop worshiping man. Stop elevating man's thoughts, man's ways, man, your, the works of man's hands. Instead, worship God. Stop worshiping the philosophies of man, the worshiping the powers and possessions of man. Stop worshiping his works, but instead worship God. Because man is a vapor. Man is a vapor. His, the, his, the breath of his life is in his nostrils. You can think about it. We are one breath away from death sometimes. Worship and esteem instead the eternal Lord is the, instru- is the implication. He is the one, the Lord who is coming to establish his kingdom is worthy of our praise. Why should man be esteemed when all of us will be humble? We should worship the one who will be lifted up exalted above everyone else, and that's the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, well, we, it's, you know, we can appreciate the things of this world while we live on this earth, but let us never esteem and worship and, and regard the, the products and the, the accomplishments of man more than God himself. As we conclude, I would simply just point us back to our scripture reading that we began this morning. With in First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through eleven, there it tells us that the day of the Lord is coming. And the New Testament is one of the clearest passages on the New Testament day of the Lord. Um, the day of the Lord, it is coming. So how shall we escape? How shall we escape? How shall we avoid the terror? How shall we not be the people who are running and hiding for caves? How shall we not be look, casting away our idols, looking for just trying to get away from God? The answer is in verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. The way out from the terror of the Lord, the way out from the day of judgment, is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have believed in Christ, God has not destined you for wrath, but he has destined you for salvation in Christ. And so let us, that is why we want to worship Christ and make sure that we believe Christ. Let's encourage one another. And how shall then we live in light of this? Because future hope affects our present holiness. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another. Encourage one another. And build up one another, just as you also are doing. Let's encourage one another to walk. In, and to do what? To, to walk in Christ. To walk in the light to follow Jesus, to love him, to keep our faith in him, to not fall away and not walk as in spiritual slumber or spiritual drunkenness. That's what the people of darkness do. We are people of light, so let us walk in the light because Christ is coming in that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would cause us to live in light of our future hope, that day that we're, where you will return in, in your son And though that day will be a day of terror, it will also be a day of splendor. Father, when that day comes, all that is wrong with this world will be made right. And Father, we pray that as as those who hear this warning, that we would make sure that we are saved, that we know Jesus Christ, for in him we are destined for salvation. Lord, cause us, if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, cause us to repent of sin, to cry out to you, to save us, to put our trust in Christ and him alone, his death and resurrection for our sins. And Father, may you then cause us who know Christ to live in light of his return. 
not to be looking for the exact time of his return, nor to just simply ignore it or be callous, but, Father, that we would keep encouraging one another now how we ought to live, to walk in light, to esteem and worship you, and not men, until you come. Father, glorify yourself as you sanctify your church because of the hope that one day you will return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.